Joshua 24, we'll be reading verses 14 through 18. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Good morning. We've been doing an Old Testament flyover, as most of you know. We looked at Job last time, two weeks ago now. That story, um, Job most likely took place during the, the time of the patriarchs, back Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, those guys. It's a unique book in the scripture, speaking of the tragedy that befell the man Job. Um, a large part of the book is a discussion and a reasoning between Job and his, his friends. Why, why is this happening to me? God finally speaks toward the end of the book, and, and we might not see his answer as humanly satisfactory, but he redirects Job's attention, and I think he's redirecting our attention to the fact that he is God through it all. We're, we are to worship and to bow to him in any and all circumstances. I think one of the lessons that, we, that I brought out there is, is simply that we should respond with trust during trial. We should respond with trust toward God during trial. It's like that bear that's caught in the cage, the live trap. He doesn't understand why the discomfort, why the trial. He doesn't see the whole picture. He can't see the whole picture. But sometimes we're like that. We, we can't see the whole picture. However, we can respond with trust to the one who does see that whole picture. So hopefully, hopefully you're able to spend some time in Job. We're coming back now, going in, in reverse in the order of the scripture, but chronologically we're coming to Joshua, the book of Joshua. So let's ask the Lord to meet us as we look at Joshua for a little bit here. Father, thank you that we have your word. Thank you that we can be a small part of that universal church. And even just the greetings from Romania are encouraging. The, the prayers that the Romanians pray for us. It's all in your sight. It's all, it's, it's all one to you. But thank you for the little part of the world that we can, we can worship in. And that we can hopefully present a light to you. And Father, thank you for this book, Joshua. Thank you for the man, Joshua. Thank you for the lessons we can learn here. I pray that we would get a grasp of what's going on during this time in history and that we would be challenged in our Christian life as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Joshua. We'll kind of be fanning through the pages as, as normal here. I was thinking, you know, this is... This series is great for people with ADHD, which is like me. I mean, you just you, you don't have time to spend too much there. Flip the page, next thing. So take advantage of it while we're doing it. But um, 
This is the first book after those first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch that we spent a bunch of time in. This is a historical book. It's often classified as just his- historical. It mainly tells the story of Israel now finally moving into the land of Canaan, conquering the land. Joshua covers about 30 years of is- Israel's history. If you still have that timeline, I'm, I haven't mentioned a date for a while, but hopefully you're able to kind of keep that somewhere. Israel came into the land in about 1406 BC, so we're talking about 1406 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene is kind of that central point that we often look at. Now we don't know for sure, but assumption has often been, been that Joshua was the author of this book, um, the book that bears his name, Joshua, the son of Nun. That's not a nun. There were no Catholics in the Old Testament. And if you were the son of a Catholic, that would be a problem. But in any case, the name Joshua, Yehoshua, it means Yahweh is salvation. It was a popular name in historical Israel. And many were named probably after this man. It's actually a popular name here too. We get a few Joshuas amongst us, don't we? It's a good name. So to help us as we fly over the whole book, let's split it into two main parts that will just help us keep a grasp on things. The first 12 chapters we could call entering the land and conquering the land. The second 12 chapters, um, we could say it's the distribution of the land and then toward the end, a commitment. Now we see a big shift as we start in Joshua. You can... You can look at chapter 1 there. Moses died, but God's plan had not died. God's plan doesn't rest on the shoulders of a single great leader, though that was Moses. Joshua is installed, and Israel is to move to that next phase. In verse 11, he tells everyone to prepare, Joshua, prepare, prepare to cross the Jordan to possess the land, your promised land. Before Joshua assumes leadership, though, God challenges him personally. These are well-known verses, aren't they, out of the first chapter. It's interesting, if you think about it, God didn't just assume that Joshua was the next robot leader. Joshua had to respond. He had free will. He had to respond to God properly. God says he will be with him. And then he says, stay in the word, stay in the truth. Do not let it depart from you, Joshua. And then three times in those beginning verses there, he says, be strong and very courageous, Joshua. Be strong and have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. It's a recipe for success, right? Chapter 2. Joshua sends two spies now into the land that they are to possess. This is before they cross the river Jordan. He sends them specifically to Jericho to look at it and check it out. They end up at Rahab's house, these two spies. Now, why did Joshua send these two spies? We can speculate on that. Was that a lack of faith? God had promised to give them the land. Why did they need to spy the land out or or how thick the walls were or whatever? Or... You could also speculate, was it an act of faith? God's promises don't negate human responsibility. 
maybe along the lines of faith without works is dead. I'll leave that for you to think through. We do see that Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, she did have real faith, real and active faith. She believed God at this point. Now, she wasn't impressed with the spies necessarily. She was impressed with the God of the spies. And she turned to him, to Yahweh, in fear and belief. And in belief, God extended grace to her and saved her and her family later when Israel conquered Jericho. It's interesting, uh, Rahab makes it into the New Testament. Even she's in Hebrews 11, verse 31. It says, By faith Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and did not perish with those who disobeyed. (laughs) Rahab would be what we would call a Gentile proselyte, one converted to God. And she also happens to be the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus himself. So as you come to chapter 3, you, you see now it's time to cross the river Jordan into the land of promise. Now, keep in mind, it's not the promised land because it was perfect, because it was paradise, but because it was promised to Abraham. Remember that back early on, we talked about that unconditional covenant that God made to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant part of that was the free gift of the land he promised them the land here they are now on the cusp of taking that land well you can view that story the crossing of the river in chapter three all israel comes to the water's edge and um, there's specific instructions of how they are to cross into the land keep in mind the river's flowing at flood stage however whatever that means And the priests carrying the ark of God, that representation of God, he is with them. They are to step into the water. They're to put their feet into the water. Now, I'm not sure exactly, but the parts of the Jordan that I have seen, they don't look like our creeks around here. They don't have nice sandy, shallow beaches. Those priests may have had to slide down in through the mud into some deep water. The point is they did have to act in faith. The water didn't change, nothing moved, nothing happened until their feet got wet. And then God opened the way. The water, in a miraculous act, stacked up on one side. You can read the details there. And all Israel crossed the Jordan. Now, if you think about this, here this is happening. This is further instilling fear into those Canaanites. They were already afraid. And they, that some of them remember the works of Yahweh 40 years earlier. And now there's more fear being instilled into them. Now, um, this crossing of the Jordan, it's often in history, you can think of maybe some old hymns or spirituals that talk about crossing the Jordan into paradise. That's really not that accurate in the sense that Canaan was not paradise. But... I heard somebody say maybe it's more accurate to see it as a representation of a spirit-filled life right now. If you want to sing those songs, you can do do what you will with them. But right now, life is full of battles, isn't it? It's full of enemies, sometimes ourselves. But by the power of God, they had the ability to conquer as they crossed the Jordan to overcome. And we also, in life now, it's not paradise, not yet. But victory is assured as we rely on God and sometimes step into the muddy water. 
chapter 4, you see what seems to be a theme in the life of these people, as well as maybe a theme for all of us who are in, in the Lord. The theme is remember, remind, remember. It's a memorial. There's 12 stones that they take from the river to set up in order that they would remember, that the generations to come would remember what God had done. Now, we may not be real good at at this setting up memorials, but maybe it's something to think about. Some of you hang scriptures on on the wall in your house or those kinds of things. What has God done for us? We need to remember. So they came and they camped at Gilgal, and there the stones were set up. And, and it was here that they stayed for several years, kind of a headquarters as they went out to conquer the land with that memorial of stones in their, center, in their midst. Chapter 5, now they've crossed and they are ready to conquer. But instead of the normal preparation for battle, you see there that circumcision needs to take place, the physical pain, the weakening that comes with that as well as the loss of the provision of manna that they've had for 40 years. They need consecration. This is their preparation for battle, you could say. Now, circumcision, that outward symbol of a covenant with God, that covenant, by the way, that started with Abraham, the men of the nation, they they bore this sign, the sign that they were God's, And it was more than just physical. It was to signify the commitment of a different lifestyle, circumcision of the heart. Well, they had neglected to circumcise for 40 years in the wilderness. Now is the time to catch up, apparently. And as they lose the manna, God is, maybe they're moving into living by the provision of the land, a little more by faith and less by sight. You also see here that they observed the Passover feast, something they were to do regularly. I don't know if they had been doing that or not. Consecration. They needed consecration. Toward the end of chapter 5, Joshua meets, and I think this is key. It's, there's not very many verses here, but Joshua meets the real commander of the Lord's army. Joshua's out somewhere by Jericho, it says, and And it almost reminds you of Jacob. Remember Jacob in that odd wrestling match he had with the angel of the Lord. Joshua sees this man. Clearly, he doesn't recognize him. And he says, are you for us or for our adversaries, for our enemies? Kind of turns out that was the wrong question. If you will, the man, the captain of the Lord's army says, I have come. I am commander. This is really about me, Joshua. I will conquer. And at that, Joshua responds by falling to, his, to the ground in worship. He recognizes that as more than just a man in armor. It's an interesting passage. You study it out later. But we're still in that first section of the book here. We're entering and conquering the land. Chapter 6, probably the most famous of the book. One of the most famous stories of all time, probably. It's... It's time to conquer that city of Jericho. God says to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Now, if you were Joshua, what you would have seen is a huge city, tightly secured, closed. There is no conquer. It's out of reach. 
for you and your men. Victory was impossible in, through the human eye. But as you know, God gave commands for strange ritual. Not really a very good traditional, I mean, a good military strategy, if you would ask most militarists. But think about this now. This was critical as Israel's first big venture in taking the land. Not only a massive city, a, a, an impregnable city, it was critical on several fronts, one of which was that the victory would rest with God's power alone and his promises and his ability. It wasn't upon their keenness or their strategy or their strength. If you, if, it might have looked downright foolish, actually, what they did. You know the story. Um, but God had promised them victory. That's in their mind. The ritual, of course, had to do with six days straight of marching around the city once and then going home. On that seventh day, they marched around seven times and then they screamed and shouted. And, well, think about those Jericonians or whatever they were called, the city dwellers. Were they laughing and mocking by day seven? I mean, maybe they were shaking with fear, but this is just strange. Would have been a joke almost. But the Israelites were obedient. Also think about this. One of those seven consecutive days was the Sabbath. And they marched around that city. Makes you reflect a little bit. But the love toward God, obedience toward God is better than sacrifice, says Samuel later. Better than tradition, better than law. Jesus says the Sabbath was meant for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, you can run with that. But you know the story here. The city crumbled the impressive walls and the military was gone Israel conquered the fortress we're moving through now and you see the second city that in chapter 7 that Israel goes against they go up against a little a little city called Ai or I and and this is now a different story than what we see in Jericho right they thought this city was a pushover they're feeling good. They're feeling victorious. And I'm behind on my slides. They, they were driven back, right? They were defeated. Actually, men were killed. But they didn't talk to God. They didn't get his counsel. Remember, it wasn't their military might that had beaten Jericho. And then additionally, there was sin in the camp. A man named Achan had stolen, had disobeyed. His sin affected the whole nation, millions of people. Actually, God says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. He doesn't say Achan. He says the, the community has sinned. Well, you can look at that story. Achan's sin and, and the subsequent disaster extended really to his property and his family. It was a serious offense. Much trouble was brought on the whole of the nation. I assume there that the severity of his punishment was to stand as a stark example to others. Well, we're, we're, we're coming now to chapter 8, and an interesting event takes place here. After they, they finally did conquer Ai with the help and the direction of the Lord, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, and he copied the five books of Moses by hand that, that was some work in and of itself and then he read 
the whole thing to all of Israel. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is he must have had an amazing voice. The second thing that comes to mind is, here's that emphasis again, remember, on the reminder. The importance of meditation and keeping God's word, the truth, the law in front of them. A while back we talked about what is in front of us continually, day after. What is in front of you today? Well, they have, they have made it by, by this time in chapter 8. And, and into chapter 9, they have made a triumphant start to this land conquest. The remaining nations are now quaking in their boots, if you will, and they, they are going to further their conquest as they go south and then some north. They entered the land about the middle, and they're spreading out. You can see there where Jericho is, and then they spent a lot of time south and went north after that. You also have the account of the Gibeonites. Maybe you remember that, the deception that the Gibeonites um, pulled over on Joshua. They're only from a few miles away, but they came disguised, pretending to be from a distant land, and they wanted to make a pact with Joshua to save their skin. Well, it worked, and it only worked because they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. They weren't supposed to make pacts of any sort with anybody in the land. God knew that that would pull them away from the truth. They did that anyway, and it really caused a lot of trouble for Israel. Well, <clears throat> we're seeing here, um, as we come into, as we roll through chapter 9, um, Israel's conquering the various people groups, occupying the land of Canaan. God in his good timing, this is a whole other discussion, but God in his good timing and plan was giving this particular land to Israel, and in some sense, meeting out punishment on the Canaanites Chapters 10, 11, and 12, there's, there's a selective list there. It's, not, it's likely not exhaustive of the, of the kings defeated and the lands taken. From Gilgal, they started with the key cities in central Canaan. And then they, in, in um, chapter 10, they went south, areas like Jerusalem and Hebron. You remember a story down there where Joshua told the sun to stand still so they could finish the battle. And then the third thing you see in chapter 11 is some focus on, on the fortress of Hazor and other areas uh, and a coalition of kings in the north that came against them. So basically from strongholds, from horses and chariots, of which they had none, to coalitions united against them, they found victory after victory after victory because Yahweh was with them. They were promised victory, but they had to act. They had to go out. They had to obey. The end of chapter 11, verse 23 says that the land rested from war. Still in that first section, in chapter 12, the end of that, that first half of the book, you see a summary of the kings defeated. 1224 says Joshua destroyed 31 kings. Now Joshua wouldn't have, wouldn't have had time to reach into every nook and cranny and completely conquer the land. In fact, that wasn't even his responsibility. His primary goal and responsibility was to take out the key Canaanite cities, which he did. Once now the distribution of the land takes place, all the tribes can go into their various areas. They can then continue to possess the land 
take the land as God directed them. Joshua followed through. You can see that in verse 15 of chapter 11. Israel, as you might remember, did not follow through well in the years to come. We'll see that as we continue our flyover. But now we come to that second section of the book, a little bit different than the first section, chapters 13 through 24, having to do with land division and some commitment. We'll look at that in a minute. Chapter 13, God says to Joshua, Joshua, you are old. Okay, thank you for that, God. And, but he says, you're not done yet. It's time to divvy up the land. Actually, they had received instruction back in the days of Moses for how to do this, what to do when it came to splitting up the land. You can see that in Numbers. It's time for the tribes to possess their inheritance, if you will. Now, you can find maps online, probably anyone that you want to, something like these having to do with the tribes' territories. So you can see here... On the right, these would be the various territories of the, the various tribes as they're split up. Some of them are huge. Others are quite small. And then over on the left, cities for the Levites. So the Levites didn't get a land allotment. Instead, they got multiple cities split up all through the other tribes' allotments. And they also got some pasture lands with those cities. The Levites lived among their brothers, serving and working in the various tribes as God's hand in the temples and whatnot. Chapter 14, an interesting testimony there from Caleb. You remember Caleb, he's still around. In fact, he's 85 now, but he's ready to go conquer his portion of the land. He's ready to roll. This man had vision for his future. He He's 85, but he's not sitting in the lazy boy, dwelling on the good old days. He's ready to move forward. You're never too old for vision, for God to use you. And if you think about Caleb, to stand as an example for those around you. Be encouraged. 85 or 90 or 90, God will use you. You can have vision. So the territories are now being divided up throughout these chapters. In chapter 18, just as a note, they set up the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle? It was hauled around various places in the desert. But now you see it set up in the, in the city of Shiloh, a permanent placement. It was actually there for hundreds of years after this. Now, skip to chapter 23 where Joshua testifies toward the end of the book. He says to Israel, not one of the good works of the Lord, the good words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken has failed. They have all come to pass this blessing of the promised land. And he says, if, if you turn away, if you mix with the heathens of the land, you will compromise. I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting here. I'm, I'm, summarizing he says to them you will be led into idolatry and then israel the threats the curses the consequences that god promised those will come to pass upon you in in chapter 24 joshua then reviews what god has done for them 
in this generation, about the past 30 years, look at verses 1 through 4 of, the, of chapter 24. He says there, in essence, now then, fear the Lord and serve Him. After reviewing, after reminding, he says, fear the Lord and serve Him. Verse 15, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. In other words, don't leave it to fate, to feeling, to the winds of change. In fact, neutrality is not an option. If you don't choose, it will be chosen for you. Inevitably, you will fall into idolatry. Joshua gives a testimony of long-term faithfulness there. And then in the famous words, he says in, in verse 15, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He chooses. Joshua then, as we wrap up um, this book, he makes a covenant with the people after they agree to serve God. He sets up another stone of witness and a remembrance. And in the last part of the chapter, just interestingly enough, Joseph's bones are buried in Shechem. You remember Joseph. And he, if you remember, he said, take me back with you when you leave, as before he died. And they brought him back. They buried him in Shechem. This was a plot that was purchased by Jacob, his father, many centuries earlier. So in a sense, we've come full circle. This was the land of Israel. This is where Jacob was. And then you see that Joshua died at 110 years old. So we bring the plane in for a landing from this all-too-brief flyover. But how's Joshua going to affect our lives? I think Joshua should affect our lives. And and his words here toward the end um, is the thing that I want to look at for just a minute. Maybe there's other points that you've grabbed or that you've, you've, you can hang on to. But Joshua spoke to Israel. He spoke to those who believed in Yahweh. He starts by reminding them of God's work in their midst. Everything they have seen and felt the last few decades and beyond. But these Israelites were not heathens. They were not people on the edge. They were, if you will, believers. He says to them, he charges them, you must make a choice. You must make a careful choice. You must think about the pros and the cons. What is it that you will do going forward as you look at your future? I think Joshua is calling for a commitment. A long term, a lifelong commitment. Now, if you're here and you've never made a choice for God to come to Christ in salvation, that's the starting place. That's what needs to be done today. But most of us here have made that choice. We, we are secure in Christ. We're on our way to heaven, if you will. But I still, I think the charge from Joshua is for us. Who will you serve? You know, it's not like buying laundry detergent you you probably all have done such a thing you've got a lot of them out there on the market you make a choice according to whatever you want the cleaning ability the price the low residue and whatever it is if you don't like it you buy something else the next time 
and it's great for the free market, no problem, but this is not like that. Who will you serve with your life, your strength, your mind, your heart? All of you. Between verses 14 and verse 24 in the last chapter there, the word serve appears 14 times. You will, I will serve someone or something. The Bible often speaks of God choosing us, doesn't it? God in his love chose us. And it doesn't nearly so often speak of us choosing him. But here it does. Joshua was talking about a commitment, a choice leading to a commitment. Now look at these five points concerning this commitment. Joshua's calling for an independent choice. Verse 15, maybe it's disagreeable in your sight to serve God. You choose today whom you will serve. The choice is independent. He's also calling for an intelligent choice. Be thoughtful about this choice. Don't just do it because you've gone to church all your life. You were raised in a Christian home. You did this or you did that. It's not just for simpletons. Be thoughtful. Why would you make this choice? Remember, he says in, in the early part of chapter 24, remember that all God has done for you in our history. Remember that he is a holy and jealous God. Build that choice on the things that you know. The choice is intentional. Don't leave it to fate. Neutrality is not an option. You will serve someone. Verse 14, he tells them, put away the gods that your ancestors served. You remember those gods? You remember some of them. They were prone to serving those gods. Put them away. Be intentional about your choice. What do, you, what do we need to put away? The choice Joshua makes here, the, the challenge, the, the charge is something to do right now. Choose this day whom you will serve. In other words, don't wait. Don't put it off until I'm an adult or until I've retired or any number of 100 things. Now is the time. The final one, the choice is influential. Your choice affects many others, probably more than we will ever know. Joshua's choice, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's still influencing us today. Some of you have that hanging in on the wall in your house, don't you? What about your choice? It influences those around you. Now, I'm going to assume that you, with Joshua, Adhere to this phrase of commitment to God. As for me, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. But just briefly, we need to think beyond that overarching phrase. What does that mean? How will we do that? What do we mean when we say we will serve the Lord? You know, if our goal is to serve the Lord, perhaps we need... You could call it a lot of different things. Perhaps we need an operating procedure. Sometimes in business, you might have something called an SOP. That is a standard operating procedure. That keeps everybody going. It keeps things consistent. It reminds, it, it, it brings, brings people into the same, on the same page. Standard operating procedure. So what is your SOP 
when it comes to serving God. In other words, what are your goals? What are your purposes? What is specific to you and to your family or to your group? What is your vision in serving the Lord? Maybe, probably not every one of us, but some of us need to write these down. We need to work them out over time. We might need to hang them on the wall. That often gives direction. And serving God needs to be specific. It needs to be specific. What does it mean? What does it mean to serve God when it comes to your time? What does it mean to serve God when it comes to your money, your valuables, your dreams, your abilities, and on and on? What does it truly mean for me to serve God when it comes to these specific things and times in my life? If you read on down there in this challenge from Joshua, it reveals that God wants 100%. Not just some, but all of us. He is a jealous God, is what it says. It's not like choosing laundry detergent. Who will you serve? And how, then, will you serve Him? Where is your commitment? One, one last thing that Joshua does here. He asked them for a witness. You are witnesses against yourself. Something like that he says there. I wonder then, who are those in my life that are a witness that I will serve God? Who are those in your life that are holding you accountable? You know, don't, don't be afraid to go home. To set up a memorial if you need to. Take, to make some decisions. Maybe with your family or your small group. Who will you serve? And who will stand with you? Who will hold you accountable to that? You know, we keep working that out as we go. You don't have to make it now and it'll never change. We keep working that out as God changes us. It's a process. But can you say with passion and with confidence with Joshua, as for me, I'm a believer. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Let's just pray as we, as we go from here. Don't, don't forget about the potluck. And if, if someone wants to have some time of prayer, one or two of the elders will be up front after the service as normal. God, thank you for this time together. It's a scary thing that you're a jealous God, but it's a good thing. And I pray that you would help us to see what it means in our individual specific situations to serve you 100%. Many, many here in this room stand as examples to me of doing that as they work that out in their own context. I'm sure each of us can give it some thought and can increase what it means specifically for me to serve you with my life 100%. You are my Lord. You are my God. As for me, in my house, I will serve the Lord. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us, your patience and your mercy. I'm just grateful for Andrew being here with us and Joseph. And just bless our time as we go into this potluck here in a minute. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.